So this morning we continue our study into the book of Daniel, and we are today looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And what we find in this passage is a very distraught Daniel. The text tells us that this portion of scripture takes place during the first year of King Darius, and this means it's towards the end of Daniel's life. And at this point, he's been in Babylon for a very long time. And as he's been spending his time in Babylon, he has been serving faithfully the Babylonian kings, now serving the Medo-Persian kings. And as he sits there looking around, he sees something in Israel that disturbs him. See, the people of Israel had been placed in Babylon because they had sinned before the Lord. Uh, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you see that it records for us that all kinds of idol worship had been taking place in Israel, both in the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, they ignored God's law concerning the year of rest for the land every seven years. They were not to cultivate the land, not plant any crops, not farm, and they were to trust the Lord to provide for them during that year. And Israel hadn't done it. Israel hadn't done it in a long time. And through idolatry and through failing to follow after God's word, we see that God said enough is enough. And just as he promised to do in the books of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Exodus, as the God's people abandoned him and as they stopped following after him, he sent a foreign nation to take them into captivity. And the purpose of that captivity was to remind them of who God was, to remind them of the covenant that they had with him, to make them repent, see the error of their ways, and return back to a life serving and following the Lord. And yet, as Daniel looks around at the people, he sees that that's not what's taken place. Their hearts are not repentant. They've gotten used to their Babylonian captivity. And Daniel sits here longing for the day that God will bring his people home. And so what we have recorded for us in chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer before the Lord. And really to understand that prayer, you need to understand a few things about Hebrew culture as we dive into this text today. See, as we in the United States living in 2023, we have a very individualistic faith. You know, our faith is personal to us. We read the scripture. We go before God. We confess our own sin. We pray before him. And it's about our personal relationship with God. And that's kind of what defines our faith. The Jews of the ancient world had a very different view of their faith because theirs was not an individualistic faith. It was a collective faith. They believed it was the entire nation before God together. And in fact, you can see this kind of littered throughout the entire Bible, even in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus makes. If you'll notice that in the Lord's Prayer, there are no singular personal pronouns in the prayer at all. Jesus doesn't say, give me this day my daily bread. He says, give us our daily bread. He doesn't say, forgive me of my trespasses, Lord. He says, forgive us of our trespasses. In the book of Nehemiah, as Nehemiah went before the Lord, he prayed for the sin of Israel collectively together as a representative going before them. And that's something that we need to understand is that the Jewish mindset of their faith during this time period was one of a collective faith. And so as Daniel prays, he doesn't pray just for his sin before the Lord. He prays for the sin of all Israel. 
and begs and pleads for mercy to God on Israel's behalf. And what we're going to see as we look through this prayer is we're going to see that first and foremost, Daniel searches the Scripture. And that after searching the Scripture, he goes through a few phases of the process during this prayer. First and foremost, he praises God and worships Him. Secondly, he confesses the sin of Israel before God. And then finally, at the end of this prayer, he begs and pleads for mercy. And that's what we're going to see as we work through the text here today. Starting in chapter 9, verse 1, the text says, In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, the, dis the descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes." So we see here the first thing that Daniel does as he looks around and sees the unrepentant hearts of Israel living in Babylon, as he looks at the scattered people around the land, is that he first and foremost consults the scripture. He looks at the prophecy given to him by the prophet Jeremiah, and he looks to try to ascertain how long the captivity would last. And he attains from that prophecy that the captivity would last for 70 years. Well, as we work through the book, as we work through this chapter, what you're also going to see is that Daniel makes several references back to the books of Moses and the law of Moses. And he makes several references back to the idea that God had made a covenant with his people and that his people had broken that covenant. And in breaking that covenant, God had sent this calamity to come down upon them. And so not only is, is Daniel spending his time contemplating and thinking about Jeremiah and his prophecy, but he's also thinking about to the story of the Exodus, how God delivered his people out of Egypt. He's thinking about the Levitical law and the commandments that God had made to his people. He's thinking about the book of Deuteronomy as Moses stood before Israel and again delivered them the law, preparing them to go and inherit the promised land. And in those books, God made promises to his people. He said, if you follow after me, if you obey my commandments, if you love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, then I will bless you and I will make you prosperous. I will make you flourish. I will make you a mighty force in the land. But God also said that if you disobey me, if you break my covenant and you refuse to follow my law, then I will curse you among the nations. I will put you under the thumb of your enemies, and I will make you serve in a foreign land. And so what Daniel sees and what Daniel recognizes as he reads those passages, as he contemplates those promises, as he contemplates those curses, is that this is exactly what's happened. God has done exactly what he said he was going to do. He's delivered the Israelites into the hands of the Babylonians. And for 70 years, they have been slaves in a foreign land, in a foreign place. And the conclusion that Daniel makes from looking at these passages is not anger at God. He doesn't shake his fist and say, God, how dare you do this to your people? 
doesn't look up to God and say, oh God, woe is us, why have you done this? I can't believe it, this isn't fair. No, Daniel looks up and he says, yeah, guess what? It's our fault. We deserve it. We've gotten exactly what God said would happen if we disobeyed his laws and commandments. And what's the response of Daniel's heart in that moment? The scripture here says that he goes before the Lord in sackcloth and ashes. He's devastated. He, he is broken-hearted at the state of Israel. And he realizes and recognizes that what has happened to them is both just and righteous and good, despite the fact that he finds himself in a very unfavorable circumstance. And you know, as we search the scriptures, we should find ourselves in a very similar place. Because you know, God has given us his law. God has given us his word. And if we hold up the word of God to our hearts, well, we realize just how far we have fallen from the perfect standard that God has given us. Jesus, as he preached before the people, he said, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you've ever harbored hatred in your heart for your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You know, Jesus said, you've heard it said that you can't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've ever looked at someone with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And when we hold up the word of God to the extent that it was intended to be held, we realize that we all fall short. Because what is the greatest commandment that we are given? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think there's anybody here who's done that. I don't think there's anybody living on the planet today who can honestly say, yeah, I've loved God and served God with everything that I have. Never having a selfish thought, never having a selfish intention, never having a moment where I just did something for me and me alone, but no, I gave it all to the Lord. We can't say that. And yet, what is it that Christ commands of us? Be perfect, for your God is perfect. See, we should walk away from looking at the pure, holy standard of God's word, and we should come away heartbroken because we fall so far short. And that's part of the reason that we go to the scripture, because we want to see that perfect standard that God has. You, you look at the perfect standard of God in Leviticus and his law and the commands that he has for his people. You look at his perfect love and the way he sent his son to die for us, and you just see that white, pure holiness that is God. Have you ever put on like a new shirt or a nice white crisp dress or something like that and then go out to eat with somebody? You know, my, we have the experience regularly in our home where all of a sudden, maybe after church or after a family gathering, something like that, we'll go out, we'll be dressed nice, and then it is inevitable that we'll be sitting down to eat and suddenly we're eating something, and, and some piece of food, usually something with like red marinara sauce on it or something like that, falls down and hits that crisp white shirt. And when it does, what does it do? It stands out. It sticks out like a sore thumb. You can see it from across the room. There's this big red splotch or a big yellow mustard stain or whatever it is, and it's just obvious 
And as we look at the pure, white, holy righteousness of God, and then we look at ourselves by comparison, our sin should stand out just that much. It should be obvious to us as the Holy Spirit leads us as we read the Word of God, and it should cause us to have the same attitude that Daniel had, one of heartbrokenness, despair, and repentance. And I think it would do a lot of us some good if we spent some time sitting in sackcloth and ashes, mourning over the fact of our sin. I mean, that's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus, is that in recognizing our sin, we can come to him for forgiveness and be restored. And that's exactly what Daniel is seeking to do. He looks at God's standard. He looks at God's law. He looks at what it is that they've been commanded to do, realizes that as a nation, they have fallen so far short. And so what does Daniel do? You would think that in that moment, he would rush in and repent, right? That he would rush in, confess the sins of Israel. That's not what he does first. But no, the first words that leave his lips in prayer are words of praise and adoration for God Most High. He comes and he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He offers up praise to the Lord. And it's so important that we do that. As we go before the Lord daily in prayer, it is important that we praise him for who he is. Why? Do you think it's because we need to remind him of who he is? Do you think God at any point has forgotten that he is holy, that he has forgotten that he is good, that he has forgotten that he is righteous? No, that's not it. No, part of the reason we praise him is, number one, he deserves it because he is all those things. He deserves our worship, our praise, our devotion. But secondly, the reason that we go before him and we should adore him and praise him first and foremost is so that we can be reminded. Because oftentimes we forget. Oftentimes we forget just how good he is, just how wonderful he is, just how righteous he is. And so we need to spend that time praising him and worshiping him so that our hearts can be reminded, so that it will affect the way we live each and every day. If you struggle in that area, if you struggle in that area of just praising God, go spend some time and read the Psalms. Look at the way David praised God. Look at the way David offered up praise and adoration, and then begin to mimic and copy that language in your prayers. And just watch what it does for your faith as you are daily reminded of his righteousness, his goodness, and his power. And that's what Daniel does. Daniel goes before the Lord and worships him because he is worthy to be worshipped and because the people of Israel need to remember who this God is that they praise. And he acknowledges in his prayer that God loves those who keep his commandment and then he is covenanted with those people who love him and keep his commandment. And then, and only then, does, David then reach, or does Daniel reach into this place and begin to confess the sins of the nation. He says in verse 5, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to the kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, 
to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servant, servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us the great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entertained the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the hands of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for himself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. You notice one thing that's missing from Daniel's confession of the sins of Israel? Any attempt at making an excuse, any attempt to try to lessen or soften or give reason. Well, God, you know, we sinned against you because we were in the middle of some pretty hard times. Or, you know, God, we sinned against you because we didn't really have good teachers of the law before us. Or, you know, God, we sinned against you because really in that moment it seemed like the better thing for us to do, but man, we're really sorry. He doesn't do any of that. Daniel comes before the Lord and he says, to Israel belongs open shame. We don't have an excuse. We don't have a reason that can justify our rebellion. We don't have a reasoning that can justify our sin. You told us how to live. You told us what we should do. You told us everything that should happen in our lives, and yet we wandered away from you. And Israel wandered away from God in a pretty big way. If you look through the history of Israel, as found in the Old Testament, you find that they began to put up temples to false gods all throughout the kingdom. They began to worship and follow after gods of surrounding nations. They began to worship and follow after gods from nations who had been uprooted and cast out of Jerusalem. And some of the practices that they involved themselves were absolutely horrific. All kinds of debauchery, all kinds of sin, all kinds of sacrifice that God never ordained and God never intended. If you were to look back at some of the practices of some of these foreign nations that Israel was now linking themselves with, it would make your blood curdle. One of the most horrific practices during this time period of rebellion against God that was practiced by other pagan nations was the worship of the god Molech. Molech was a pagan god and Molech demanded child sacrifices. And one of the ways that they would do this is they would erect these big bronze statues of Molech. 
And these bronze statues would have their hands outstretched for the people. And under the hands of Molech, they would build a fire. And they would build that fire and build it up until those hands were blazing hot red. And then in the hands of Molech, they would place their newborn children. And these are the countries and these are the nations that Israel was hooking themselves to. These were the temples that they were erecting inside their own providence. And God looked at it and said, it cannot be so. And so it makes sense that Daniel writes in this prayer that he sits there and says, God, to us belongs open shame because we have done horrible things. We have departed from your word. We have wandered so far away. And now even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our captivity, we still haven't repented and turned to you. We still haven't given up these sinful ways. And then what does he say of God in bringing this calamity upon them? He says, God, you're right to do what you've done. In fact, the fact that you have punished us, the fact that you have brought us to this place, the fact that you have caused us to be put into captivity, it only confirms your word and shows off your righteousness. It shows that you are good and holy and just and that you have done the right thing exactly as you said you would do. So what's the parallel to our world today? See, Israel was a nation before the Lord, and we don't have a nation like that before God anymore. But what we do have is the church. And the church does not replace Israel. Israel has a unique purpose in God's plan and the redemption of the history of the world. We cannot claim all the promises of Israel for us, the church, but the closest parallel we have today is the church. And what do we see happening in the church today? Well, we see people in churches all across our country departing from the truth of God's word and departing from the truth of the gospel, allowing all kinds of sin to run rampant in the church. You know, and it starts off really small and it starts off really simple. There are certain parameters that God has set up for how church is to be administered. And when we begin to ignore those parameters, well, very quickly we find ourselves getting into all kinds of trouble. One of the things that's contested in our world today that's kind of a hot-button issue is that in God's word, the office of pastor and elder is reserved for men. And you look at that statement in today's culture and today's climate, it's not popular. It's not something anyone wants to talk about. And in fact, many churches have abandoned that teaching deciding to change the way God has established his church. You look at another principle of the Bible that's not popular to talk about today, and that's the fact that marriage is reserved for a man and a woman alone. And yet we see people in the church now today saying, however you want to live is fine. Whatever standard you want to have for your life is fine. However you want to worship and praise, however you want to live, however you want to enjoy yourself, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it's okay. That's not what God's word says. And as the church wanders away from God's teaching, as the church wanders away from the instruction the Lord has left, we find ourselves under condemnation. Another one that we see running rampant in the church is just the basic doctrines and the truths that we teach. We, from the Bible, teach that Jesus Christ came to this place to pay for our sin as a substitutionary atonement. 
meaning that where we should have died, Christ died in our place. Where we should face God's wrath, Christ faced it in our place. Did you know that that doctrine in many progressive churches today is not being taught anymore? They say that that idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, it's akin to cosmic child abuse. And how dare God demand his son to die? Why can't God just forgive? They say that any application of the cross of Christ as paying for our sins to appease the wrath of God it is just unloving, unkind, and has no place in God's church. The problem is, is that that's exactly what the Bible claims. That when Christ died for our sin, he died to appease the wrath of God. And so, as we look at the church in our country drifting farther and farther and farther away from the clear-cut principles set out in Scripture, what are we to do? Well, I think that it would be good for us to do as Daniel did, to pray before the Lord and say, Lord, there are churches in our country who are not upholding your word. There are churches in our country that are not following after your principles. There are churches in your country that are making an absolute mockery of your name and the work of Christ on the cross, and it pains me to see that happen. Lord, I'm sorry that this is taking place in our world. Please help me to be a force in this place so that that never happens in our church, so that that never happens in our community, and we can stand firm on the foundations of the Bible. See, the reason that Daniel is moved to pray as he sees Israel drifting farther and farther away is because he has such a love for God and such a love and delight for his word that it actually hurts him to see God's people doing what they're doing. And so we, as God's people in the church, should feel as we see other churches drifting farther and farther away. It should pain us. It should terrify us to the point where we go before the Lord in prayer. After Daniel finishes laying out the sins of Israel, and as he finishes confessing the sin, saying, Lord, you are righteous and you are good, and to us belongs open shame, he finally shifts his prayer and he begs and pleads for mercy. He continues in verse 15 and says, O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy hill, because of our sin and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas of mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not at present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not from your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel goes before the Lord and says, please forgive us. Please turn your face of wrath away from us and let your face shine with goodness upon your city. Why? 
so that we can be released from Babylon? That's not what Daniel says. So that we can prosper and flourish and be a powerhouse in the world stage again? That's not what Daniel says. He looks to God and says, God, for your name's sake, please restore Israel. For your name's sake, please remove our desolation and let us thrive again. For your name's sake, Lord. Why? Because your people are called by your name. See, Daniel's chief concern wasn't just for the people of Israel. It wasn't just that they be prosperous. It wasn't just that they be a powerhouse on the world stage. It wasn't just that they survive and thrive and have great wealth in the land. That wasn't what broke his heart. What broke his heart was because the actions of these people were bringing a bad reputation on the name of God. That these people called by the name of the Lord were embarrassing him and making a mockery of him, and Daniel just couldn't stand it. And so he says, Lord, for your name's sake, restore your people so that you may be praised and honored and glorified again. And you know, as we live our lives, we should have the same concern for the name of the Lord. We should have concern for the reputation of God. We should have concern of what people in this community think about God, and therefore we should live accordingly. You know, there are times when we gather our kids together, and maybe we're in a restaurant, or maybe we're in a museum, or maybe we're just out somewhere, and all of a sudden our kids start to go just a little nuts, as happens from time to time. You know, all of a sudden one of them goes tearing off running through a museum, or all of a sudden one of them picks something up off their plate and throws it across the table at a restaurant. And all of a sudden, in an attempt to kind of calm the chaos, we will look at our kids and we will say, hey, 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 (laughs) carters don't do that. Members of our family don't talk to each other that way. Members of our family don't act that way. Members of our family are respectful and kind, and you need to remember that. And what are we saying? We're saying, hey, for the sake of our name, for the sake of the reputation of our family, there's an expectation of how you're to live. And it's the same way with God's people in his church. As we go out into the community today and tomorrow and every day, forward. We should have that understanding and that remembering that, hey, my last name isn't the most important moniker that I wear. My job title isn't the most important moniker that I wear, but the most important moniker that I adorn as I get up each and every morning is that of a follower of Jesus Christ. And that as I live day after day in this place, I represent him. And I either bring honor to the name of God or I bring shame to the name of God. And please understand that this isn't about salvation and this isn't about earning your place in God's kingdom. That was established a long time ago when Jesus gave his life on the cross. Our sins are forgiven and we are seen as righteous and holy and perfect in the eyes of God. But as we live out our lives, Because of what has been done for us, we should be consumed with such a love, such a passion, and such a devotion to God that we want to bring honor and glory to his name. We want people of this community to think well of our God because they can think well of us. We want people to think well of our God. Why? Because he is worthy of praise and adoration. 
because he has shown us great mercy and because we love him. Have you ever been in a situation where someone says something negative about either your spouse or your kids? You ever been in that situation before where you have to stand up and say, excuse me, no one talks about my family that way? That happened to me once in a church setting. Someone stood up and they said some nasty things about my wife. And I had to pull them aside and we had to have a conversation because that kind of stuff said about my wife's not going to be tolerated. Shame on us if we bring that kind of negative talk about God because of the way we are living. And you know, as we look at this prayer that Daniel makes, it reflects our own lives so much. Because as we look into the scripture and we see the holiness of God, we see our own sin reflected back at us. And then as we seek to praise him and worship him, we must confess our sin before a holy God and plead for mercy, which we are given freely through the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we have been placed into his kingdom, as we have been placed into his family, we can now go out and live lives that bring him honor and glory and praise. And that should be the highest aim of our lives, that we seek to honor him, that we seek to bring him glory, and we seek to bring him fame in this place. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the calling that you have placed on our lives. We thank you for the joy that we have in serving you. And we thank you, Lord, that no matter what our sin is, your cross has covered it. No matter the desolation we see in our nation, no matter the desolation we see in our churches, you are righteous, you are holy, and you are good. Let us live every day for your glory. Let us live every day for your namesake. And let us live every day to bring you fame, majesty. Let us do everything we can to uphold the name of the Lord in our lives. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.